The Achaean and Trojan armies line up against one another, and Paris, the son of Priam and brother of Hector, struts out and challenges the best of the Argives to single combat. Menelaus, king of Sparta, answers the call, and Paris, upon seeing Menelaus, cringed from death and hides back amongst the Trojans. Hector chastises Paris, and Paris then agrees to single combat against Menelaus. The challenge of Paris is issued and accepted, with the terms being that Helen and her treasures go to the victor, and friendship will be sealed in blood between the Achaeans and the Trojans. King Agamemnon and King Priam seal the challenge with an oath and sacrifice the Zeus. When it is clear that Paris has lost the duel, Aphrodite swoops in and transports Paris to his bedroom full of scent. Aphrodite coerces Helen to go to Paris, and Helen, at the longings of Paris, makes love to him. Meanwhile, Menelaus, Helen's former, or actual husband, is outside Troy like a wild beast, and his brother, Agamemnon, declares Menelaus the winner. Helen and her treasures should go to Menelaus and the Achaeans. Friendship should be bound in blood between Troy and ancient Greece, and the war should be over. Welcome to Ascend, the Great Books podcast. Today we are discussing book three of the Iliad. My name is Deacon Harrison Garlic. You can check us out on thegreatbookspodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter, where we actually have a lot of good conversations about what we're reading right now in our year of Homer. You can also check us out on YouTube. We also have a wonderful guide to the Iliad. I'll hold it up for those on YouTube. Here it is. So we have 115 questions helping to explain the Iliad, about 65 pages single space, so that can help you or your small group. And like I said, today we are discussing book three of the Iliad, Helen uh, Reviews the Champions. Today we are, uh, we have a guest. We actually have a guest today. We have no Adam. Adam Minahan is gone. He has disappeared. And so we have <laughs> a new Adam. Uh, we have a guest with us today, uh, Dr. Carl Shoot, that's who, right, Doctor Carl Shoot. I love that. Who has holds a PhD in philosophy from Marquette University, but also a BS in aerospace engineering from Notre Dame. I am curious how often those are actually uh, coupled together. Uh, he also ha he also works as a strength and conditioning coach for Barbell Logic, and yes. also is a lecturer for the online great books program which is also based here in tulsa oklahoma yes. yeah so you have you have a wonderful uh collection of things that seem to be at least at first glance on opposite ends of the spectrum right you have your aerospace and philosophy you have your study of the sure. great books and uh strength and conditioning so welcome to the podcast thank you i'm glad to be here it's uh, going to be fun uh yeah I, my it sounds like i i uh I can't really decide what I want to do with my life. You know? <laughs> uh, no, the engineering. So my family were engineers since my, my grandfather from, uh, you know, way back in the twenties, uh, a hundred years ago, my goodness. So it was kind of the family thing to do. Um, and so I did it too, but then I, I, I was fortunate to be able to shift 
and uh, went into philosophy, which is not a great career path, but uh, it's, uh, you know, it's where the truth is, uh, or at least it is a way to truth. Uh, I remember having an, uh, a friendly argument with a friend of mine who was a theology student and uh, pointing out to him that, you know, over in philosophy, we at least have to make arguments. <laughs> As opposed to just, you know, an intellectual assent to the dogmatics of the faith. Yeah, I mean, you have to find the right authority, uh, <laughs> dig into the fathers. Uh, as far as the strength training, I don't see them as opposed at all. I mean, it was always a, a, an avocation of mine, and uh, I've been coaching since about 2012. Uh, if you are going to take care of your mind, well, we are embodied, are we not? Uh, so it's the resurrection of the body. It's this this odd bit of Catholic dogma who cares about the body right aren't we just caring about the soul no no you're you're a body soul creature well uh if you're going to care for your mind by reading the great books you probably ought to care for your body and a great way to do that is to lift heavy things and put them down uh in a structured way uh, so i don't see them as opposed at all i think they're they're it's the same thing it's just a different part of you uh, yeah. So, so tell us about tell us though about the online great books that you so guys online have. online great here. books. It's a little melancholy to talk about it at the moment because we are reconfiguring. So what we did, but I'll tell you, it was a fantastic program, and uh, perhaps we will. Well, uh, my friend Scott Hambrick is working on retooling it for a different way. But what we did is uh, we ran seminars like you do at your house on Sundays. We ran seminars online, and we put, oh gosh, we probably put, uh, well, more than a thousand people through uh, the great books. We did mostly Mortimer Adler's list with a few additions and subtractions. We didn't do the science stuff because we weren't quite sure how to do that over a Zoom call, although we did have uh, Euclid seminars running, which hmm. was good. Um, we would do it once a month, and you'd get together and... Uh, what we did, I wasn't really a lecturer. I, I wouldn't, like you said, I think in, in your first one of this series, that Homer is the teacher. Uh, th we have a sense, Deacon Harrison, that, that these books are too lofty for us. You know, that you can't approach them. That um, I, I, I'm not going to read Homer. I'll just check the Wikipedia and see what the experts have said about it. Never mind that Wikipedia is not the experts, but you know I, I need to find out what an expert says about it before I can even delve into it. And now we had, no, we just said everybody come on in, and you just start reading. We recommended, as you did, not to read the introduction. I think the introduction is very good for Fagel's Iliad, but don't read it first. Just dive in. You just right. It's okay. You'll be overwhelmed. But you know, Homer wrote it for you. <laughs> He did not write it for academics. He wrote it for you. It's okay. Uh, and so it, it was just fantastic to have people, you know, going through posterior analytics or um, Tom Aquinas uh, and uh, being thoroughly confused, but getting something about it, something out of it. And, and uh, you're all uh, structured, like in your pedagogy, do you also start with Homer? Homer's the first great yes. book that you read? Yeah, we start with Homer. Uh, I, he's the he's the beginning of everything. There are older books than Homer. Uh, 
I don't think there are better earlier books than Homer. Uh, the Bible is a separate category. I, it's not. It doesn't have to stand on its own as a literary work. You know, nobody's going to read Leviticus for fun. I, I don't think. Um, I'm sure someone has. <laughs> we uh, probably won't be doing a year of Leviticus on this podcast. It'll probably not actually happen. Uh, well, there's well. If you remember that it's all about Jesus, you have to figure out how the discussion of leprosaurs and how to identify them is. Never mind. That's your business, not mine. But uh, that's uh... This, is where the, this is where the church's allegorical read uh, comes in very handy. So when you guys start off with Homer, as we mm -hmm. do, and you have these people that are like we do, we also have a lot of um, first-time readers, right? So I've been, I, I serve at our local cathedral. I've been pulled aside. They are saying, hey, hey, I'm, I'm following the podcast. Like I picked up my books. Like I'm going to read this. I've always wanted to read this, but I didn't have anyone to read it with me. When those people kind of come to you guys and you say, you know, they want to say, we want to read the great books. You say, we're going to start with Homer. Mm -hmm. Why? And they say, why? Why start with Homer? How do you answer them? Uh, well, like it's, as I say, I think it's the first great book of the Western tradition. Uh, it's, um, it's like a rookie comes into Major League Baseball and hits a Grand Slam home run to win the World Series on his first at bat. It's so good. You know, you weep to, to if you were going to try to write fiction, if you, nobody writes epic poetry after Homer. I mean, there's a couple people that, that try that, like there's an Argonauts thing that mm -hmm. I think Apollonius of Rhodes does, but it's, you know, it, he kind of killed, he was so good. He killed the art form. You mean for the Greeks or because the Western tradition has a few other ones. You mean for the Greeks overall? For the Greeks. Yeah. Nobody does it. And Virgil does it in imitation. Right. But nobody, when you go into the arts, you know, you, you kind of want to be the best. You want to do something <laughs> new and uh, you're just not going to do anything Homeric better than he did. Um, there's this expression, I forget who said it, even Homer nods. You know, I don't think so. I don't think mm -hmm. so. The more I read this thing, you know, that thing that you think is an error, uh, I don't think it's an error. Like there's a bit in uh, book nine, the embassy to Achilles, uh, where Homer uses the dual number instead of the plural to refer to, uh, so it's Phoenix and Ajax and uh, is the other guy, Odysseus, who are going to talk to Achilles. And so Homer uses the dual rather than the plural, which would be triple. So in Greek, in Greek, you have singular and plural like we do in English, but you also have one that you use, some endings that you use in Homeric Greek just for when you're referring to two people. Well, and so that's pointed out to you. That's, that's a case where Homer screwed up. He should have used the plural. He just didn't go back and fix it. And I, no, I think he did it on purpose. I think probably what he meant is that uh, Ajax and Odysseus were uh, were the main ones, and Phoenix is the afterthought. And in fact, hmm. Odysseus, if you look at that, Odysseus actually jumps the gun and he, he shuts out Phoenix. Phoenix was supposed to go first, hmm. which would have made a different embassy. You know, the, the, the nursemaid to Achilles saying, come on, come back and fight. You know, remember when I, I wiped... Uh, wine off your chin when you were a child. 
And then you have Ajax talk about, hey, we're buddies. This is Oliver Girl. This is silly. And then you have Odysseus say, by the way, here's all the money that you would get. Instead, you get money first, then Phoenix, then Ajax. And it just doesn't work. And so I think that that duel is to point that out, that, that something's going on. Well, anyway, so why Homer? Um, I think also uh, it is, I think... I think we live, for the most part, in the ruins of Christianity. Uh, I, I wish it were not so, but I, I think it's probably so. You know, people have, the, to the gre- degree that they have morality, it's some sort of relic of Christianity. You know, hmm. it's just, why can't you be nice? Why can't you just be good to people? Well, what do you mean by good? We mean self-sacrificing and uh, non-exploitative. You know, it's, it's Christian ethics. But it's attempting to have it without Christianity. There's, well, no sub, there's no substance to it. Yeah, and it's like um, Socrates says somewhere, it's like uh, the statues of Daedalus, if you don't tie them down, they leave your yard. You know, they're so lifelike that you have to chain <laughs> them down. Well, we don't really have the chains. You don't know why it's good to be a certain way. You don't have that framework of, uh, you know, here's God, God is the first and the final cause, and everything else is ordered to to that, well, then it makes sense. But you, you take all that out, and it doesn't make sense very much. Well, Homer is delightfully, in my opinion, before Christianity. He's before everything else that happens. So when you look at what human nature is in the Iliad and the Odyssey, it's well, some people might say, well, geez, Agamemnon is such a jerk. I can't believe he would do that. And Achilles, you know, he takes his ball and runs to his mother. You, you, you try to fit them into your modern categories and say, well, they're bad people. Why are they bad people? Because Achilles really, really cares about his reputation and his honor. And well, you know, but I, you know, uh, 21st century post-Christian, I think I should be humble. And he's not humble. Well, why do you think you should be humble? Well, you should be humble because it's the truth. In the Christian standpoint, it's the truth. That's what Teresa of Avila says, you know, blessed are uh, the meek. So you have a reason to be humble that you've forgotten. Hmm. Achilles has no reason to be humble. The only way he's ever going to get honor and the immortality that he can get, the only immortality that he can get is to be honored, is... Well, he's got to claim it. Right. I don't think he's being a jerk. I think he's actually acting rationally. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm not sure if I'm as um, deferential to Achilles uh, as you are. His, <laughs> I, I agree with you. We have to be careful, right? Because um, we talk about this a lot on the podcast as we kind of explore the Homeric text. Is like It seems like you can fall into one of two errors here. One is you bring in such a robust Christian ethic that you can't read anything prior to Christ because you don't mm-hmm. know how to judge it, right? And I think that you've already kind of thrown out the the correct term, which is we look at nature, right? We look at human nature. I share human yep. nature with Homer's characters, and therefore I can judge them according to natural law. But even in Homer, the understanding and reflection on nature is very nascent. We're looking at the beginning of the conversation on what it means to be a good man. So even like bringing in like uh, Aristotelian ethics into the into Homer, I think is mm-hmm. slightly too thick yep. because Homer is just now trying to get us to understand what it means to be a good human. I think we're going to see a comparison in the Iliad between Hector 
and Achilles on this point of what it actually means to, you know, have arete, to have this excellence. Mm-hmm. I think too, then on the other side, you can just simply become a relativist and just say, well, we can't judge them because we don't have anything in common with them, right? It's it's Greek ethics are different than ethics here in Oklahoma in, you know, 2024. And so, you know, we just can't judge them. And that's another error. Well, no, we can, but we have to kind of meet them where they are. And the way that I've, as I kind of thought about this, I realized, and this kind of ties into why to read Homer as well, is in certain ways, I think there's a strong analogy between how providence cultivated history for the coming of the gospel and how we cultivate our own souls. And so a lot of times we forget that grace actually perfects nature. It both heals nature and perfects it. And so and what I mean by that is that nature, uh, typically we all sometimes fall into an error of talking about grace as overcoming nature. Nature is something that has to be overcome. But in a lot of ways, nature actually prepares us for the reception of the gospel, right? And so actually having like a strong obedience to natural law, for example, or say the natural virtues actually makes you more inclined uh, to receive the gospel, right? You've actually tried to cultivate that in you. And we see providence, I think, do this in history as well. I, I you know, throw out the thesis that I think that providence used Homer uh, and then the Greeks overall to start asking questions that actually cultivated the world for the coming of Jesus Christ. Sure. Right. The logos, right. Even the new Testament's in Greek. So the way that our souls are cultivated to receive the gospel and the way that history received the gospel, I think are uh, an analog to one another, but we forget this even in our own catechesis and evangelization, where it's like, well, why should I ever read Homer? Why should I ever cultivate the natural side? Like I should just read Christian texts that actually I think there's a lot of benefit in reading Homer, particularly looking at these pagans and see, wait, what excellences do they actually uh, display? Mm-hmm. What what questions do they have? Because I think in in all ways, I think Dante is very good about understanding this. In all ways, the way we see the pagans and we see the excellence they're promoting is only going to push the bar higher for Christianity. And like, well, look, look what this guy was able to accomplish. Look what they cared about. Look at their piety towards these false gods, even without grace and suffering under the effects of sin and without the grammar to even articulate sin. Mm-hmm. But look what they're able to accomplish. Yeah, um, I want to. I think that's. I think. I think that's right. I think uh, for Achilles, there's this line from Victor Hugo in uh, Les Misérables. I can't pronounce French words. Uh, I can't either. So just that, go that for long it. book that he wrote, he says <laughs> somewhere in there he says you don't study history to judge but to understand. And so I want to, I, I took that to heart. I want to, I want to defend myself a little bit. I'm not too, see my judgments of Achilles. If I read these books and say, he's the bad guy or he's the good guy. Well, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's kind of unfair. If I judge him by my ethics, which were formed in Christianity, uh, he didn't have that. He's also dead, if he ever existed. I think he did, but he's also dead. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, Thucydides says a similar thing. He says, you know, you read you read my history uh, to understand, and then it helps you in the future. Well, what then do you understand of Achilles? And I, I think what you can understand is kind of a bare model of a certain type of human being. Uh, you might have known people like Achilles in high school. You know, super talented, very ambitious. Uh, I believe the kids these days call them chads. You know, these uh, 
He's he's handsome and he's the best at everything. Notice nobody in the book actually gets mad at him. Hmm. You know, they don't say you, you're being shameful, Achilles. Nobody does that. Um, they like him. They admire him. Well, what is it that he really cares about? And we, we're going to actually get to book three eventually. <laughs> you know, he cares about he cares about his he. Well, he doesn't know to care about an immortal soul. He doesn't know that because he's before all of that time. The, the the scariest thing in Homer is the the visit to the underworld in the Odyssey. The ancient Greeks don't have any sense of any kind of a good afterlife, at least for most of them. You know, your shade goes to the underworld, and uh, Menelaus gets to go to the Elysian fields because he's Zeus's son-in-law. But you know, for the rest of us, there's this. It would be a spoiler if I give Achilles' line from the Odyssey. Well, we should probably let some of these play out. We're, we haven't even started book three yet, and we're discussing whether Achilles is good or bad. We just got introduced to him. Yeah. But these are, I mean, these are things we have to track, right? This has, yeah. to, un, this has to unfold. Because sure, I think that even, sure. like, even on the conversations that we've seen show up on like, uh, you know, the website formerly known as Twitter, like uh, immediately, right, people have a question like, wait, am I more inclined towards Agamemnon's? position or more inclined mm -hmm. towards Achilles. And I think that's kind of like a first time yeah. reader. Book one tends to kind of grasp you. Uh, they've made it through book two, which had a, an exciting start with a murderous dream. And then we ended mm -hmm. up with a roll call that kills a lot of first time readers because it's like, what am I supposed to pull out of this? I love the roll call. And, and then, we, well, I think once you understand it, I, I like it as a, as a sign of Greek unity and you understand what it means, I think, to its audience. You but know, book I, three, yeah, you know, book three where we are now. The way I look at book three, which I think is really interesting with Helen kind of giving her kind of running commentary on a lot of the Achaeans, but in a lot of ways, book one pulled back and revealed the internal politics of the Achaeans. In a certain way, it didn't really even pull it back. It's the first thing you get is you just get chunked right into the meat grinder of what is happening in the Achaean army, right? These Argives in this constant strife, this rage, and you get thrown right into that. In book three, one of the ways that I read it is that Homer now gives us the internals on the Trojan side. And even though Helen's giving kind of a running commentary on the Achaean heroes, what really stood out to me in book three kind of as an overarching theme was what do the Trojans actually think about Helen and Paris? Like, what do they think about their own mm -hmm. people? And this is something that, that you and I need to discuss is that because as we kind of, as you, you listen to the podcast, we didn't really get into any of the stories prior to uh, the Iliad that mm -hmm. Homer doesn't actually, you know, give us some time later. So this is actually our first kind of introduction into wait, who is Paris? Who's Helen? And what actually is the impetus of the war? And one thing that I find really fascinating throughout the text is who do the Trojans actually favor? Even who does Hector favor? How does he actually treat Paris? So I think book one and book three in a certain way uh, reflect one another as showing us the internal dynamics of each side of the respective armies. Yeah. I, I, uh, well, Helen's one of my favorite characters. Uh, they're all Deacon Harrison. They're all my favorite characters. But that's good. Uh, well, except for Paris. If you start, I can deal with Achilles getting somewhat of a defense, and and also Helen because I'm sympathetic to her as well. But if you start giving me a defense of Paris, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to figure out where Adam Minahan went and invite him back to the podcast. <laughs> so let's do this. So maybe if you, I, I want to hear your thoughts on Helen. Can you just give us like the? Um, can you start? Because some of the things we're kind of waiting to reveal as Homer reveals them, but can you kind of start with the narrative of 
um, Paris going to Menelaus? Like how, how does, because we get all these narratives that the first time reader isn't quite aware of the backstory of something happened with Paris and Helen and Menelaus that has given the impetus of this war. Okay. So there, there's many stories on this. Uh, I was just rereading, I have the, the Loeb edition of the Epic Fragments, but I left it in the other building. Um, where they give you kind of the whole thing. The whole cycle was called the Cypria or the Cypria and, and the Iliad's part of it. Uh, well, anyway, so there's this guy and he's out visiting the Spartans. He's visiting uh, Menelaus and he, well, Menelaus has to go because I think his, somebody was sick. He has to go on a journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he there leaves. is Paris left alone in the house with Helen. Okay, so the, there are two main things that Paris does, which are very, very bad, very bad for ancient Greeks. Uh, the first is that he steals the wife. This is bad. You would think this is bad enough. But the second thing is he does this after he has been a guest friend in Menelaus's house. Okay, so there is this notion of hospitality. You come to my house, I welcome you in, I feed you. Now we are friends. We give each other gifts. And uh, this is like a, it's almost like a family bond. And you, you don't break this. Um, it's, uh, I think it survives somewhat in the Mediterranean region, even now. You know, you go visit and you're, you're part of the family. Well, imagine they invite you in, you're part of the family, but you steal your guest's wife. And Robin. There's one thing to to steal her. It's another thing to rob you. It's another thing to do it after you were invited in. So to contrast it, um, the Achaeans are sometimes prone to piracy. Achilles has a girl named Briseis. You talked about that a couple episodes ago. They've got women that they have stolen. Stolen. Captured. I, it, it might be offensive to your modern sensibilities, but fair and square, you know, you go besiege the town, you conquer it, you take the women. That doesn't get the degree of moral outrage that Paris does. Correct. If Paris had laid siege to Sparta and killed Menelaus and taken Helen, no one would have batted an eye. It would have been normal. I mean, they might go and fight him as an enemy, but he wouldn't have done this terrible thing of violating hospitality. Uh, when you get to that other book, Homer writes, um, there's a whole lot on the problems of hospitality back in Ithaca since Odysseus has been gone for 20 years. Yeah, and this is, I mean, just to jump in here, it's hard to explain how much this actually animates the narrative, this this theme of guest friendship. So like, if you're unfamiliar with this concept, I think it's just worth reiterating because you're absolutely right. And I actually really like that parallel that you draw is that we had, um, I think Fagel's, I, I go with Fagel's pronunciations mixed in with some Oklahoman stuff. <laughs> so you have, you know, Briseis, right? You, but you have these, you have these women that are basically chattel of war, right? They've, they've been taken prisoner and Agamemnon had his favorite and then Achilles has his favorite and et cetera. And I think you draw a really strong parallel there that they don't launch a whole war. They don't launch, right, a thousand ships that come across the Mediterranean and wage war on, you know, Troy. Helen does. And so just to reiterate, this guest friendship, because we haven't seen, I don't think, a good example of it in the text yet. It's kind of a background. 
where we're going to see some good examples of it in the Iliad to a certain degree. And then the entire Odyssey is basically animated by this theory. Every single book uh, has guest friendship in, it, in multiple, multiple different ways as Odysseus mm -hmm. tries to make it back home. And so just to give like an example how how rich this is, like the guest would show up at your house and you don't even ask their name. You don't ask their name. You don't ask what's going on. You just take them in and you bathe them, right? You bathe them, you feast them. And then after they've had their fill of wine and food and everything else, then you ask them, hey, by the way, who are you? Right. And mm -hmm. then there's this reciprocity with guest friendship where then they're going to tell you their story. And so there's, there really is this deep, uh, intimate bond that's actually built there, right? This, this guest friendship that's particularly, you know, amongst these aristocrats that are traveling. And, there, and there's a huge practical element to this too. And we probably should mention because it, it comes up in book three is that then Zeus is the patron of this. So what actually holds this together, right? Like there's a, there's a divine element that actually holds this guest friendship together, this hospitality that Zeus is overwatching this. And so like, if you're a host and you uh, don't accept the guest or you're, you're defensive against the guest, you don't do these things, then you could have a curse down upon you by Zeus. If you're the guest and you aren't gracious, you don't actually, um, you know, respond, you don't tell your story, you don't do these things, then you too, or you just happen to steal your host's wife, right? Which is a negative. So then th this is when, and we'll, we'll see this, when Menelaus and, and Paris are dueling, Menelaus actually makes an appeal to Zeus on this grounds, right? You need to allow me to defeat Paris to show everyone what happens to a guest who violates guest friendship, who has an offense against his host. Mm -hmm. And there's all kinds of myths. I mean, just me to, to draw a quick New Testament parallel and also an Old Testament parallel, right? There's all kinds of things here in um, Greek mythology that one of the reasons you need to do this is because your guest, your, your pair of strangers who come in and need housing in the night might actually be Zeus himself, right? So over on, uh, over on my side of the church, uh, we have this icon of the Trinity. <laughs> Hold on a second. Can you give a, a brief parsing of your side of the church? Oh, uh, so I'll, yeah, and, and I will plug this for our listeners in Oklahoma. Uh, I am a Byzantine Catholic, uh, the Ruthenian I don't know, it has a bunch of names, the Ruthenian Greek Catholic Church in America. Um, so we are Catholic. We are in communion with the Roman Catholics. Uh, we pray for the Pope. Um, but our our traditions are a little bit different. We like icons. Uh, it's it's It should be pretty much orthodox in everything except that we commemorate the Pope on Sundays at the liturgies. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and we have an outreach at Catholic Charities. Look for us on Facebook. Love to see you there. Uh, okay, so we have a, there is a plug. We have an icon of the Trinity by Anton Rublev, I think a Russian, and uh, I'm not sure if he's the first one that did it, but he depicts the Trinity as the three angels that visit Abraham. Okay, so Abraham welcomes these three men that the, the text calls Lord in the singular. It's a very odd bit in the Old Testament. And the idea of the icon is that he's actually entertaining the Trinity in his house. Do you notice the parallels there between um, Scripture referring to the three angels in the singular 
and your thesis you threw out earlier about Homer using the dual about both oh, text yeah. there. Yeah. Both so, text there using like the language to actually communicate sure, that there's so something else going on. If you get the, the Jerome Bible commentary and you look it up, they might say, well, this is just an artifact of Semitic languages or something, you know, like uh, in, in Genesis where, um, let us make man in our image and likeness, and it uses a plural. God refers to himself in the plural. Well, that's just a grammatical feature of ancient Hebrew. Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think the Bible nods either. <laughs> I don't right. think the Holy Spirit nods. Um, you know, my my belief in Homer is not on the level of my belief in the Holy Spirit, but they're similar. And so when it, you have that, you say, oh, the Christians can come along later and say, see, the Trinity is actually in the Old Testament. It's just hidden. It's a little bit esoteric. Right. Um, but also, I, I'm glad you brought that up because the two texts that I think of, of like the Hebrew hospitality, because I think it is worth mentioning oftentimes how the, the Hebrew culture runs parallel to the Greek. One is is the visiting of the angels to Abraham. The other one that comes to mind, it's not the only one, but the other thing that comes to mind is Hebrews in the New Testament where it runs quite closely to the Greek myth of say, hey, you need to be hospitable to the stranger who comes at your door because it might be Zeus. There's a whole myth where Zeus and Hermes actually go to a poor person's house uh, mm -hmm. and how they're treated. And Zeus and Hermes end up blessing that family because they, even within their poverty, accepted them as guests. And yeah. St. Paul, so I'll just throw out a St. Paul authorship of Hebrews as an aside. St. Paul mentions in <laughs> Hebrews that, um, you know, you need to actually entertain these strangers who come to your door because, you know, people have been hospitable towards guests and unknowingly entertained angels in disguise. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that both in the Greek culture and the Hebrew culture, this hospitality is very thick and has a rich tradition, not only just in like, I guess, you know, it's not just reducible to being kind to people who come to your home, but also in how it actually helps civilization, right? The welcoming of the guests mm -hmm. and, you know, these, sure, these bonds sure. that are actually built. Yeah, and um, there's also violations of it biblically as well. So in, in Homer, we have Paris in the Bible. This is not the sum total of the difficulty of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's part of it, is that Lot is a <laughs> guest, and they want to uh, do nasty things to his daughter, uh, and or his mm -hmm. sons, I believe. And so they're well, violating. The angels, right? The angels that go to Lot? And oh, the yeah, men of the city, right. they, yeah. yeah. The men of the city say, send them out, right? Yeah, that's a certainly an aspect of it is that they're supposed to be guests of the city and, you know, you're, there's going to be a, you know, basically a rape of the guest. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly obviously a violation of that hospitality as well. Again, not the sum total of the problems going on there, but you see that same culture that there's a deep perversion then of what's supposed to be happening between host and guest and that it actually has uh, effects on a societal level. Yeah. And if you did not have guest friendship, you know, what else would you have? You would have... Uh, I mean, it's it's Hobbes' state of nature, probably. Mm -hmm. Solitary, nasty, brutish, and short, uh, unless you can make a friend. Um, and I know you like to... Well, I mean, this is perhaps a natural uh, preliminary to Christian charity. I think so. And I think that if you're going to say, okay, well, we see this in the Hebrews, we see this in the Greeks... Who picks us up most clearly in uh, Christian culture? Well, setting aside, I think a lot of the teachings on just general charity that we have our Lord tell us in the New Testament, I immediately turn to the Benedictines, right? 
that they're the ones then that stress that hospitality of then you welcome the stranger as Christ. And that's actually the new standard, right? So I'm actually mm-hmm. now welcoming the standard or excuse me, welcoming the guest as Jesus Christ himself. And if you've been to, you know, a traditional Benedictine monastery, we're very blessed out here to have Clear Creek. It's incredibly humbling to eat with them and come to the monastery and the abbot comes, you know, and washes your hands and greets you and sits you down at the table and all the monks are sitting there, you know, serving you food. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly humbling experience as a guest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, if, uh, dear listeners, if you have a chance, you ought to go find a place like that. Go. Yeah, come to Clear Creek. That's beautiful. So let's actually look at the, that's a good, that's a good um, 40 minutes of preliminaries. I like that. <laughs> so let's, let's, turn, let's turn to book three. But I think there's some good things here that, that we have that are kind of haunting in the background that we need to know. And I think guest friendship is certainly one of them. The fact that Paris absconded with Helen, I think is another one. Mm-hmm. These are some of the things that are haunting this text and kind of animating it yep. uh, behind the scenes. So, so like we see, if we start off and I'm looking at Fagel's translation, which is what we're kind of working through. The first thing that we kind of get is Paris comes out. And I love this because sometimes I don't know how people think this, that Homer doesn't have a sense of humor. But Paris, like Paris, Paris coming out in my mind is like one of the first times you realize like, oh, this is a funny text. Mm-hmm. Like, like Homer actually has a good sense of humor. Oh, yeah. Paris comes out, right? Challenging is like line 20, 20 or so, challenging all the Argive best to fight him face to face in mortal combat. And Menelaus, of course, steps up. And we now understand there's this background that now they're fighting over Helen. Uh, Paris has absconded with Helen. Menelaus is her, what I would say, rightful husband. And it says Paris spirit shook, right? His spirit there probably being Thumas, right? His, his actual spirit, what should be inside him seeking glory and honor, right? Actually shakes inside him and he cringes from death and runs and hides amongst the friendly ranks. And so he dissolved again, is it Homer says, so he dissolved again in the proud Trojan lines, dreading Atrides, which is, um, Another name for Menelaus and Agamemnon because it's a derivative of their father's name. But I love this epithet, magnificent, brave Paris, who just ran back to the lines. I mean, you've got, to, you've got to realize when Homer's writing this that he has a sense of humor, and Paris tends to bring it out a lot. Yeah, the, the, uh, I love the way the epithets are used, ironically. Uh, you spoke, I mean, the epithets are... Um, Go back and listen a couple episodes ago. They're there to help you get metrically to the end of the line. So Potus Ocus Achilleus, swift footed Achilles, gets you to the end of the line. Um but Homer being a genius, uh uses them uh like uh, later in books, uh in book nine when Achilles is sitting there not doing anything, it's swift footed Achilles, you know? Right. Who's doing nothing. And here, magnificent, brave Paris is not being magnificent or brave. And so you should pay attention to the epithets. They're, they're, they're not just a metrical device. They're, they're a work of genius. I want to go a little earlier because there's, there's something else going on here that it's not just Paris. It's that I think there's a difference between the Trojans and the Achaeans that, um, that comes out right from the very beginning, uh, if I can read a little bit right from the beginning of Fagel's in book three. Now with the squadrons marshaled, captains leading each the Trojans came with cries and din of war like wild fowl. When the long horse cries of cranes sweep on against the sky and the great formations 
flee from winter's grim, ungodly storms, flying in forests, shrieking south to the ocean gulf, speeding blood and death to the pygmy warriors, launching at daybreak, savage battle down upon their heads. Okay, so I love Homeric similes. Uh, he'll take you on five lines of something else and say, and that was like the Trojans. Uh, you have to think about that. So they're like squawking birds at the beach. Very loud. Hmm. But Achaea's armies came on strong in silence, breathing combat fury, hearts ablaze to defend each other to the death. So the Trojans and Paris, I would say, are showy. You know, they they come into battle yelling and screaming. The Achaeans, you know, people tend to be sympathetic to the Trojans, I, but the Achaeans are like the professionals. They've been doing this for 10 years. They've been fighting amongst themselves. Now they're fighting the Trojans. These are, it's like when you, uh, if you've ever gotten into a physical confrontation with somebody who knows what he's doing, and there's this moment you say, oops. <laughs> right. Uh, the Achaeans are, are uh, like that time in high school when I wrestled with the guy on the wrestling team. Or ran against the guy on the track team. Right. Did you dissolve back into the friendly ranks quite quickly? <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did. No, the track guy ran twice as fast as me. You know, it's because those little moments of humility. No, that's a good. I like that. I like that juxtaposition a lot. And I think we're going to see that. I mean, one that sticks out to my head. I don't think it's in this book, um, but the Trojans, particularly, maybe when things get a bit darker, will start being compared to sheep a lot, mm -hmm. like sheep to a slaughter, right? So even like when they actually bolster themselves and they have all their lines and their phalanxes and set, and you, what should be like you know a pretty graphic. Um, military metaphor or simile, what you get is sheep. Mm -hmm. And it kind of shows you, I think Homer play, I think right now for, particularly for first time readers, what we're really emphasizing is watch the epithets, watch the similes, yeah. right? They're, they actually mean a lot more than what they mean. Like they on do, their face. they do. And, and it's not always obvious what they mean. So I, you you mentioned shepherds right in the next paragraph. Uh, the dust from the feet of the Achaeans is, is compared to a mist and Homer says, no friend to shepherds, better than knights to thieves. All right, well, that's nice. That's poetic. Well, but you know some of the story, especially if you're an ancient Greek sitting and listening to Homer. Paris is a shepherd and a thief. Hmm. I, I can't draw an at Why does Homer say this? I don't know. But it's like, it's, hmm, what's it like? Uh, so... At that cathedral where you serve, there's this a wonderful pipe organ. Um, and, uh, you know, when they play the notes, it, it resonates. A good pipe organ is designed in the building. It's tuned to the building. So the whole building is a musical instrument. And there are resonances in the building, you know, that it's made to, to make the building shake in certain ways. And so these similes to me, they're like notes of the organ that, and now the building's humming. And now I'm humming. I'm like, what's going on there? I I'm perking up. Shepherds and thieves? I know a shepherd and a thief. <laughs> you know? Uh, right. It, Homer's so good, man. You guys got to read it. Uh, no, I, li I like that analogy. And I also think, too, one of the things, so I also teach great books for our diaconate program. Mm -hmm. Actually, at the time we're recording this, I am actually going after this to go teach to them uh, books 17 through 20 of the Iliad. And one of the things that I've really stressed for them, and I, I hope that they're experiencing now, is that reading the Iliad and reading it well 
and Homer overall will make you a better reader of scripture because it will oh, yeah. habituate your it will habituate your mind and your attentiveness the picking up on these similes um mm. these metaphors that are used attention to detail because again scripture doesn't use a lot of unnecessary detail so if scripture starts telling you a lot of details about something there's a reason right it's it's drawing those facts and i think the same thing in homer sometimes it's easy to let the mind go numb when he goes on these similes that are five six lines long but in there, I think, is, is something worth paying attention sure. to. Yeah, St. Basil the Great has a letter on the use of the arts to young men, use of the secular arts, and he makes similar points. I mean, look, the Bible is a book. It is, uh, it's the Word of God, but it's in human language. It's written as a book. With It's like, if you say Jesus is fully God and fully man, the book is fully the Word of God and fully the Word of man. You know, it's an, an, mm-hmm. So you need to be able to read. You need to be able to read more than a recipe. You need to be able to read more than Harry, you know, Harry Potter. You need to be able to go through levels of meaning, uh, and that is in the best works of the ancient world. They are um, often esoteric. You know, there's meanings layered on meanings, and to be good at this, you, you well, it yes, it's definitely. That's a long way of me saying yes. I agree. <laughs> That's good. No, thank you for that. I appreciate it. So let's look at, let's, let's see if we can sally forth a bit in here. Uh-huh. So we get Hector's response to Paris kind of uh, dissolving, if you will, back into the ranks. Uh-huh. And this is where I think when I first read the Iliad, I was really surprised. Like, oh, they, these guys are not as unified as no, I would imagine no, or not. think, right? Hector has some wonderful lines. Like if you're ever wanting to criticize someone for their cowardice, there's a lot of lines that you could pick up here uh, and use. The ones I really enjoy around line 60, right? You're a curse to your father, your city, and all your people. A joy to our enemies. Rank disgrace to yourself. Yeah. Right? Just just these wonderful lines of criticism. And a little bit, I don't know, uh, line 55 or so, you carried off a woman, right? So we're starting to see, particularly as first-time readers, we're starting to see all these little jabs about, you know what, Paris? We're actually here because of you. Mm-hmm. This is your fault, Right? You absconded with Helen. Now, I have used the term absconded. I, where do you land? And this is like probably another three-hour conversation, but maybe like as a preliminary, I think a question that always comes up here, because as we see in book three, Helen is insanely critical towards Paris. And actually, as I mentioned in the, the summary, what we opened with, is that she's basically forced into loving Paris, right? Aphrodite actually basically forces her. Harris, or, uh, Helen has a great line of like, hey, if you want me to go love Paris, why don't you go love Paris? Mm-hmm. Right? And then that doesn't work out well with the goddess and Helen has to go love Paris anyway. So one of the questions I think that usually pops up to a first time reader is like, wait, did Paris kidnap Helen or did she leave with him? Is this her fault too? Uh, gosh, that's such a good, such a good question. Um, even if she did go willingly, so let's get into some uh, psychology here. Even if she did go willingly, it would have been as a result of uh, passion, okay? Some physical passion for the beautiful Paris. Uh, we call them passions because they happen to you. It's related to the passive voice. Um, it, it, it's something that you suffer. 
to what degree is she responsible for the passion that she feels for Paris? Uh, and you could you could take a number of answers on this. You could say, well, not at all. That's what Priam is going to say later. You know, it's not your fault. It's the gods. Uh, or you could say, well, she gave in to it. Which is, you know, in in Christian theology, you're you're not supposed to give consent. You know, things will pop up, and you're supposed to um, let them go, let them slide by. They don't last forever. C.S. Lewis says, "Don't worry, it won't last forever." Uh, but maybe you don't know about that. You know, maybe it's it's all just, you know, what is there outside of my appetites? So this is something else that we get in Homer, the idea that there are, well, the question of, are you capable of self-control? That's such a weird word. Think about what's being said in the word self-control. It's automatically dividing you into two things, that there is a self that's in control of the rest of you. So there is a mind, or I forget what Freud calls it. Is it the su- the id, the superego? I don't know. There's something like the ego. Yeah, there's something riding the train that can control it. Uh, Odysseus will will smite his chest and and you know yell at his at his heart to bear up. So like he's taking agency over his passions. Uh, well, if if you don't have that, I mean, you could say Helen Helen went willingly. Uh, <laughs> No, my so here's my my working as a, from someone who's actually even read the text several times. I I tend to oscillate on where is Helen's culpability, and in certain ways, you know, we'll see in the text Helen critiques herself, mm-hmm. right? Helen tends to actually critique herself as if she had free will to do these things. Yep. And so, in a certain way, there's buyer's remorse, right? So she, in a certain way, you can read this is that she left with Paris. And now she's in Troy and she's with a man that she doesn't love and that Aphrodite has to force her into loving Paris. On the other hand, and I think this is a broader question, Iliad, is to what degree do any of these characters have any agency whatsoever mm-hmm. under this kind of like Paul of the divine right. will? Right. And so there's a, and I think this book gives us a little, uh, a passage, a little, um, an insight into this in that weird dynamic mm-hmm. of uh helen not wanting to sleep with paris yeah we see her push back on her own agency and basically she's overridden by aphrodite and it's like no you have to go do yeah. this no that this is not a problem that goes away uh see calvinists you know the, <laughs> what degree do you have freedom how can you have uh how can you have gods or god and still be free. It's hard. It's hard to figure out how that works out. Nevertheless, it does. But, you know, poor Helen, I think she wants to go home. I think she knows. There's this beautiful, sad moment. Uh, I can dig it. Dig it out. Where she's uh, looking for her brothers, Castor and Polly, do says, Castor and Pollux. They're her brothers. Surely they would have come. And yet they're they're not there, but they're because they're dead. She doesn't know that they're dead. So this is uh, what's well, line two eighty, and so um, two I cannot find. They're the captains of the armies, caster breaker of horses, and the hardy boxer 
Polly Dew says. My blood brothers. His mother bore them both. You know, she can't see them. Why isn't her family coming to get her? Right. I think it is tragic. And I think one thing to point out, too, is that when we read the great books, the other thing that we're looking for is these perennial truths. That's why they make these books great, right? Is they're taking on this these perennial questions, these perennial truths that really all the great books in some way, shape, or form are going to reflect on, right? Because mm -hmm. as the human condition, these questions always arise to the top. And one of the questions I think that we have and that, that you just um, kind of echoed is what what is man's free will? particularly in relationships to the free will of the divine, right? What is the relationship between man's freedom and God? And Homer, I think one way to look at this is Homer does not resolve the problem. What Homer is actually doing in certain ways is introducing us to the problem. There's right? no way he could have solved the problem. It, it, he doesn't have the tools to do it. Uh, but Helen's not the only one who sees it. Achilles sees it as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Achilles and Helen are probably my two favorite characters, and people will say, well, how could you like those people? Well, I like. At least it's not. Paris. Uh, I'm going to give a defense of Paris in a moment. Uh, brief, but uh, they see the game. I think when Helen yells at Aphrodite, she knows she's being manipulated. If you were thoroughly manipulated, you would not know that you were manipulated. So there's evidence of her agency in her being able to rail against the goddess. And Achilles would do it similarly um, at the end, uh, book mm -hmm. 24. Uh, he does it some other places too. To know that you're in a rigged game is means that you surpass the game somehow. The rats in the maze don't know they're rats in a maze. But Achilles and Helen do. Hmm. Uh, Agamemnon doesn't. He has no idea. <laughs> this, okay we're not going to give a defensive Agamemnon that's good no I think a lot of and <laughs> it's interesting to see how that plays out because you know I think um, Menelaus at some point will take a step back from the battlefield and basically pray to Zeus that he knows that it's Zeus that's causing all of these things so it's interesting I think as you bring up to track which characters seemingly have the capacity to step back and realize what the gods are doing which I, I agree yeah. with you does denote some level of agency to them, at least an awareness, how much they can affect it, I think is a big question, right? So even if you can see what's going on, to what degree can you actually affect what's going on? Yeah, and it's also um, the, another reason I put the Homer at the beginning of the Western canon. Uh, whatever it means to be Western civilization, one of the things about it, it is self-critical in a way that, that I, I think other great strands of, of civilization in the world really aren't. Um, and you can see that in that, how could you read Homer and still think what you thought of the gods? Right. You, you mentioned that it's funny. The gods are comic. They're not serious. They're not tragic. You don't weep over the gods. You know, um, there. So it's it's like there's this crack that's opened, in uh, it's kind. I don't know that you should call it a religion. Whatever it was that the Greeks had that they believed about the gods, there's cracks in it. Now it, it it's all subject to to thinking. You know, which you're in the middle. Uh, I think in present time you're in the middle of the Oresteia. Uh, 
it, it's um where you have the Furies and um Apollo arguing. You know, it becomes subject to debate and thought. Does this really make sense? And it well, talk about preparing the way in the fullness of time for Christianity. This is one of the ways, I think. No, I tend to I tend to read this at times, which I, I realize is a stretch, is that I think Homer at times makes the gods so ridiculous. And also at times so fatalistic, showing like you could do whatever everything that you need to do, but still you get cast aside or whatever. I think in a lot of ways I tend to want to stretch and say Homer the teacher there is offering a indirect critique of the gods by showing them as so comedic and so subject to passions. Mm -hmm. And I think that what this does is, as we look at the great books as a whole, I agree with you, the answer comes in Christianity, but in a more proximate way, what we see is, is that I think this sets the stage for Plato's Socrates, who then takes up this explicitly, right? Well, how, how mm -hmm. can I be a holy man? How can I be a holy man? Well, you follow the will of the gods. Well, that's great. Do the gods agree? Oh, well, no, no, they don't, right? We've all read the Iliad. No, they don't agree at all. Okay, well, what, which gods do I have to follow to be holy? And how do I know what's best? And all of a sudden, it, the whole concept of this religious pantheon tends to crumble. And so I, I do think that Homer there is, is showing us these things uh, in the gods, and that these questions then, which are just beginning in Homer, become much more robust as the great books um, continue on. Now, as, a, as an enjoyer of Homer, as a Homer enjoyer, one of the things I enjoy is that he might be doing these things, but he doesn't tell you, he shows you. you know, this is not an after-school special. He doesn't say, and now is time for you to doubt the, the ancient Greek gods. You know, don't do drugs. It, it, that's, not, that's not the way he does it. He just shows you. He, he rarely speaks in his own voice. Uh, He's just showing you stuff, and you you get to figure it out for yourself. And I think poetically, that's much better. That um, Aristotle says somewhere the whole point of an enthymeme is that you get your audience to draw the conclusion, and now it's theirs. You know, and it, that's better than just you know telling somebody what to think. Uh, so there's a purity to to Homer, especially in the Iliad, that I love. Okay, can I give my defense of Paris? Go for it. Okay, I'll be brief. I, I can I can see the expression on your face. Um, all right. I'm very doubtful. Well, go ahead. All right, so I want to point something out, and this is something that you can get in Lattimore, you can't get in Fagel's. Uh, I've used the Fagel's translation for years and years and years, and I like it. And if you're new to this, it's probably the one to get. Uh, second place, I think, would be Lattimore's translation, which is very good. But one thing that Lattimore does, and I wish Fagel's did, is... He gives you the name. So Paris's name through most of the book is Alexander. Okay. But Alexander means defender of men. You can see Andrew, like, like Andrew, Manley, um, it, anthropology, they're, they're related. So this would be, let's see, this is when Hector yells at him. And Fagel's translated as Paris, appalling Paris. That's really the only time. I think in this book that he's called Paris, at least in, in book three. So he's called Defender of Men when he's out, you know, vaunting in front of the Achaeans, and when he agrees to the duel, good for Paris, he does agree to do it. But when he runs back, Hector calls him Paris, not Alexander. So this is a, 
evil Paris, beautiful woman, crazy cajoling, uh, Prince of beauty. You lure them all to ruin. Uh, so he doesn't earn his name. Names mean something. And his name, he doesn't get to have the manly name when he's being Paris. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So Hector, uh, insults him and it's all true. And Paris, magnificent as a god. This is line 70. Paris, magnificent as a god, replied, Ah, Hector, you criticize me fairly. Yes, nothing unfair beyond what I deserve. The heart inside you... Well, pause right there. So, Paris is like calling customer service. And you're really, really mad. Uh, by golly, you're going to get them to, to make things right for you. And you, you lay out everything that's gone wrong with your order. And the person on the other end says, I understand how you feel. I appreciate your concern. And you're like, I don't want you to appreciate me. I want to be mad at you. You know, so it's like it's like punching jello. There's no <laughs> resistance. Uh which is probably how he manages to to live in that city after bringing this woman. Uh but he says a little bit later, he's, he compares Hector to an axe, a very unyielding thing. That's probably reasonable. But line 77 or so he says, still don't fling in my face the lovely gifts of golden Aphrodite, not to be tossed aside the gifts of the gods, those glories, whatever the gods give of their own free will. How could we ever choose them for ourselves? Paris thinks that Helen is a gift of the gods. He thinks that love, physical love, is probably, is almost certainly what he means here, is a gift of the gods. And, uh, Gosh, this might even be topical, but I don't want to get into other things of the modern world. But he might have a point, you know? Uh, everybody likes Hector because he goes out and fights, and everybody doesn't like Paris because he goes home to his wife, his beautiful wife. But he thinks that's a gift to the gods, too. Um, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting because I read that slightly more broadly. I think it, I think it could refer to Helen as Helen being a gift um, of Aphrodite to Paris, but it's also, I think, those gifts are also his own, um, you know, his handsomeness, right? Because it talks about in the critique when Hector says, you know, your sumptuous, worn wife, these gifts of Aphrodite, your long flowing locks, your striking looks. Right. Um, he plays the liar. So I took it both as referring to Helen, but also uh, the gift of, of the gods of Aphrodite to Paris is that he's a good looking man and the women like him. Right. He's very handsome mm -hmm. and that these he's bringing different. I, I, I didn't read as charitable as you, because what I felt was, <laughs> is that he was being, um, you know, he was being somewhat like, you know, I have other gifts. Yes, I just went out and I did a duel and I ran away and dissolved. But, you know, you're the axe. You have the gift of the gods. You have strength and whatever. But me, like, look at me. I'm I'm pretty. And I, mm -hmm. I have other gifts from Aphrodite. Mm -hmm. And so, like, yeah, I mean, sure. But this goes back to the problems that just in the in this Greek mindset, simply because you have a gift from a god doesn't actually mean it's good, right? The gods don't even agree. So I don't know. I I I saw that he was just hmm. offering that he just has other gifts that he could bring because and being on the battlefield is probably not one of them. Well, and at the end of the book, it is literally a gift from Aphrodite. He gets plucked out of the duel, which he agrees to. He does well. He goes to fight, but she 
uh, skews the game, plucks him out, drops him in his bedroom, and brings his wife to him. It is literally Correct. a gift of Aphrodite. Uh, yeah, very explicitly. And, you know, Helen is those old men at the gate talking about her. She is the most beautiful woman in the world. Um, it, it, my goodness, the, the beauty, beauty. What do those old men say? Let's go to. Yeah, let's look at that because I actually think their response is really telling. So they're at like in Fagel's, it's a little after like 185. I'll read it in Fagel's because I think this is where you started to see again, what are the internal dynamics of Troy? What are the relationships? And so the men say, who on earth could blame them? Ah, oh, no wonder the men of Troy and Argives under arms have suffered years of agony, all for her. Such a woman. Beauty. Terrible beauty. A deathless goddess, so she strikes her eyes. But still, ravishing as she is, let her go home in the long ships and not be left behind. For us and our children, down the years, an irresistible sorrow. And this was really striking to me, particularly the first time I read the text of like, oh, like Troy's not sitting here being like, oh, we have Helen now and gloating and saying, look, we're great. Like the old men at the gate are like, yes, she's ravishingly beautiful to the level of a goddess. Send her home. Just send her back. Well, notice, right? Well, and it's the old men that say send her back. And they're not, as, uh, as you mentioned earlier, they're not as subject to their passions. Yeah. The dried up cicadas or crickets, as they're <laughs> described. Um, there's right. so much wonderful in that passage. The terrible beauty. It's like, I think it's the word, same word you use for Achilles, you know, terrible Achilles. Fearsome. Uh, for the listeners, you just have to, to see if this is, is right. Um, there's something frightening. This is going to sound terrible, but being in the presence of absolute glorious feminine beauty is, uh, it's hard to coexist. You know, it's just, it's fearsome in a way. It, it's, help me out. It's so funny. That it's, it's, so, it's so funny that you mentioned that because I'm currently reading uh, the Phaedrus, Plato's dialogue, as my as one of my morning mm -hmm. reads. And I've been reflecting on just shortly, I've been reflecting on the role of beauty and some of the things that he says there. And it, it is interesting that beauty sends, tends to precipitate in man a certain fear that truth and goodness don't seem to do, right? So if, if like a man fears the truth, it's because he wants the untruth, right? He likes to lie. He doesn't want, he doesn't want what's true. Mm -hmm. If a man fears what is good, he wants what is bad. But when a man fears beauty, it's not because he wants what's ugly. It's because the beauty undoes him. He wants right? the beauty we think too about much. Like, you know, yeah, like think about it. It's, it's like, no, this beauty is too much for me. And I think that in a lot of ways, I was just reflecting on this morning. It's, it's interesting that this comes up now. And actually, when I, I posted on Twitter, I actually posted a picture of Helen as like the image to go along with this thought mm -hmm. process. That it, it's like the young man, right? That that is afraid to talk to the woman. It's not because he doesn't want the woman; he wants the opposite of the woman. He wants the woman. That's the problem, right? But beauty causes a certain fear in him that well, I think immediately judges him to a certain degree, right? Because like if a young man sees a beauty, a woman of that that beauty, it's like immediately the the mindset is, do I measure up, right? Do I have what it would take 
to actually obtain that beauty. And there's like a fear, but it's very unique to beauty overall. And it's also very unique, I think, to the feminine form. But it oddly, it occurred to me this morning that I find it to be a very strong natural parallel to the fear of the Lord, <laughs> right? That there's this fear of the Lord. And you say, well, that's weird because I don't want the opposite of the Lord. I don't want to run away from the Lord. Why is there a fear of the Lord? And sometimes we get like, well, it's a respect. That's what it means. It means respect. But I think on a more existential level, it reminds me much more of beauty and the fear that, that can be put in your heart because of the thing that you want is so beautiful that it causes a certain existential unsettledness in well, you. Uh, and I think it, it plays out well just because I think that God is beauty itself. Yeah, it's the pearl right? of great price. What would you do to get that pearl? Uh, mm -hmm. It raises all sorts of possibilities of action which are threatening and dangerous and will just unsettle your life. You know, it, it's... um. There's many such cases of beauty just blowing everything up, you know, just, uh, yeah. Well, anyway, so there she is. <laughs> so she's this terrible beauty. Yeah. She's trouble, you know, we might say. Uh, and it's not necessarily her fault that she's trouble. This is another thing to think about with Helen. Does she, has she chosen her allurements or is this God-given? She's been right because she, she's a daughter of Zeus, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, Menelaus gets to marry her, but he was not her only suitor. It was pretty much everybody. Uh, when she complains to Aphrodite at the end, she says, "Do you have somebody somewhere else? You know, you're going to send me." Uh, let's see. This is line four sixty. Maddening one, my goddess. Oh, what now? Lusting to lure me to my ruin yet again. Where will you drive me next? Off and away to other grand, luxurious cities, out to Phrygia, out to Myonia's tempting country. Have your favorite mortal man there, too. You know, so there's some a threat to her because everybody wants her. You know, right. you think that it would be better to not be so beautiful. It would be a more peaceful life. You could say something similar to Achilles. Achilles could have had a better life if he were not the best of the Achaeans. At least a more peaceful life. Uh, Achilles is the Helen of the Achaeans. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I, I like, I'll go with that. I like that a lot. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of things to look at there about Helen. And Helen's beauty, we should say, instead of just putting the entire onus on Paris as I believe we've mentioned previously in the podcast, is that, you know, her beauty look, already is what actually launched a thousand ships because Paris absconding with Helen only really is a strike against Menelaus. So as a reminder, well, why wasn't it just Tr Sparta? Why is this not the story of Sparta versus Troy? Why do all these other people come? Well, it's because of the oath. So mm -hmm. if you remember, I think we talked about previously on the podcast, right? That Helen's um, earthly father, if you want to say that, right? Her mother's husband, Right, he can't deal with all these suitors, and so what does he do? Well, under the under the advice of Odysseus, he comes up with an oath. Well, okay, I'll pick a suitor. Right, I'll pick someone for my daughter to marry, for Helen to marry. But all of you guys have to vow to protect the marriage. And this is like that wonderful Greek storytelling of they all agree, not thinking that then something alien's going to come into the order. Mm -hmm. Right, Troy, which I don't think is actually part of the original agreement. Right, and so something alien comes into the order, and now they find themselves 
being called up by Agamemnon, according to their oaths, to go wage war on Troy. So her beauty, right, even outside of like Paris's particular, you know, predilections towards her, her beauty has already served uh, to bring them all into the war. Let me, um, kind of for the sake of time, let me just rapid fire uh, a few things mm -hmm. as we've kind of been working through the text. So we talked about the old men and their reaction, right? It's kind of surprising, like, oh yeah, just send Helen back. Priam's response to this, I think is really fascinating. Yes. That Priam actually says, hey, you know what? It's not your fault. So I'm then expecting, okay, we're finally going to blame Paris because I think it's his fault. It's also not Paris's fault. It's the gods. That's who's to blame. And I think this is really interesting, particularly as a first time reader of like, okay, how do we take that? Is Priam, because I think my gut reaction is, okay, Priam is the father who can't blame his child. He can't actually tell Paris that you did the wrong thing. And now it's just like, you know, Helen, you're okay. Paris is okay. It's the gods. That's who it is. It's the gods. After reading this text a few times, I'm like, you know what? I think Priam might be right. I think we just blame the gods. I think that's actually who you blame here. So that's something I think that we have to figure out is, is Priam's uh, read of these things justifiable as the narrative uh, continues to unfurl? Yeah, I was thinking of him as uh, Mr. Bennett from Pride and Prejudice. Uh, who, who, you know, doesn't actually raise his children. He enjoys them, but he doesn't raise them. And he's actually the bad guy in Pride and Prejudice. He's the reason that one daughter runs off with Wickham. Uh, and that and defense. Priam has fifty sons. Yes. So it's hard for him to raise anybody. I mean, it, gosh, imagine uh, you're, you're Paris's dad, and he brings this girl to your city, and like. What would you say? Wouldn't you say something like, you take her right back where you found her? You know, and my gosh, you took the wife of the the king of Sparta? Do you know who his brother is? It, right. What? So his, whether he has agency or not, he has not sent Paris packing. Uh, the Trojans, are they innocent in this? Um, they... I don't know. I mean, they could have, they could have sent him away. Oh gosh. Mm -hmm. uh, but another thing to look at is um, just going to push it forward again mm -hmm. is, is at two forty five or so Helen starts talking about all the champions, right? The Achaeans. Yeah. But she says, she's talking about Odysseus and she says, he's quick at every treachery under the sun, the man of twists and turns. One of the things that we have to track as first-time readers of the Iliad is Odysseus. He's not really like a main character in the Iliad. He pops up a few times and has some good narratives. But then, you know, spoiler alert, he's the main character of the Odyssey, what, right? A derivative of his name. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's interesting that the Odyssey opens up with Helen's words. It's not attributed to Helen, but it actually opens up with Helen's words of Odysseus, the man of twists and turns, which is probably... One of the opening lines that is dissected and debated more than any others in the great books of what that word actually is, right? And how it should actually be interpreted, that man of twists and turns, right? But I think for this point, at this juncture, we need to note that it's actually the words of Helen. It's Helen that actually calls him out and uses that phrase. Yeah, I like the description of Odysseus um, in particular. So we've gotten, uh, so Paris has the appearance of a great warrior, but is not. You talked earlier about Thersites, the ugliest man who came to Troy. 
who is neither a great warrior nor does he have the appearance. Um, and Odysseus, the way he's talked about, he's short. He has short legs and a long torso. He is more lordly when he sits down than when uh, uh, when he stands up. Oh, this is Antenor. This not Helen talking about him, but uh, when he gets ready to talk, he looks sullen. He doesn't do the accustomed gestures. He grasps the scepter. He doesn't move it back and forth, which apparently other people would do. Uh, Fagel says in 265, Fagel translates it, you'd think him a sullen fellow or just plain fool to look at him. In appearance, he looks like a blockhead, like, um, I don't know uh, how you describe it, just somebody who just can't speak. But when he let loose that great voice from his chest and the words came piling on like a driving winter blizzard, then no man alive could rival Odysseus. And then there's one more line. Odysseus, we no longer gazed in wonder at his looks, which um, I think you could interpret variously. But once he starts talking, we no longer think about how funny he looks. Correct. So, which is interesting because it's not the takeaway you get when you read the Odyssey. When you read the Odyssey, like his looks and everything, he's he's very really much this like grand warrior, right? They're like, and it's funny how they complement the body at this time because they actually understand warfare, right? So it's like, oh, he has rippling thick thighs hmm. and a thick neck, right? This is how you can tell like you're actually a warrior and you do things. So it is funny, like this introduction to him is not the picture of him that I have in my head after reading the both Homeric tales. So that's something to track and maybe about why that perception exists. One thing too, I would point out. So we have the, um, so we have this challenge, right? And so they're going to do this. And then we have these things that are attached to Paris's challenge, which is, you know, the, the victor gets Helen and the treasures and there will be a friendship forged in blood. One of the things that I really had kind of a question about is, you know, Agamemnon is then the one that's actually going to make this. So the two Kings, Agamemnon, well, I should say the chief King, right? Cause there's a lot of Kings. Agamemnon is going to come down and make the deal with Paris or excuse me, with Priam, mm -hmm. who's the king of Troy. One, it's really interesting that Menelaus will not make the pact with the princes of Troy. And he makes this broad statement that the princes of Troy are not to be trusted, yes. which in no way, shape or form, I think you can deny is because uh, the princes of Troy ran off with his wife, right? So he's like, nope, the entire princely class of Troy, I do not trust them. So Priam has to come out and he makes this. And there's two things about the ritual that I find fascinating. One, Agamemnon's like, yes, we're going to make this pact and we're going to do these things. And it's really hard for me to understand what Agamemnon thinks is going to happen because there's all these prophecies that Troy will fall and that he'll walk the streets of Troy like in the 10th year. So when he's making these things of like, listen, this is a way to bring the war to an end and we'll get Helen, we'll get the treasures. It's interesting for me to try and figure out what's going on in the mind of Agamemnon. That might be a dangerous place to go, uh, to be quite frank, because I'm not really sure Agamemnon knows what's going on all the time. But how he interprets this and what he thinks is going to happen, I think is interesting. And two, you have interesting behavior by King Priam as well, that he comes out, he makes the pact, but then tells everyone, I can't watch this. Like, I can't, I can't watch my own no, son I, duel. Yeah, and he leaves. So, okay, on, on Priam, I typically say Priam, but I agree with you that one should just pronounce them confidently and not worry too much. <laughs> uh but he's he's kindly, so it's hard to be annoyed with him. 
I wanted to point out the uh, he's kindly and soft-hearted, at least at present. Uh, those old men in the gate are described as being like cicadas, which if you've ever heard them, they're very loud. They weren't whispering. You know, they might have been right. old man whispering. Terrible beauty! You know, but they have to speak loudly because they can't hear each other. And so this is public. I, I think that Priam heard them. And then says to Helen, well, it's not your fault. You know, so right. even if he is the reason for the ultimate reason for the undoing of Troy, it's hard not to like him because he's kind. And he can't bear to watch his son, whom he loves, even though Paris is Paris. Uh, he, he can't bear to watch it. He loves his boy. Do you fault him for it? Well, I actually kind of do, but... um. It's a, it's a noble fault, you know, to love your child too much. There are worse things you could do. Yeah, it's interesting because we'll we'll get later into a dialogue about piety and piety being this this gratitude that the Greeks have towards the gods, towards the polis, right, the city state and towards their parents of these things that have given me things even before I ever deserve them. Right. As an infant, I'm drawing from my parents. I'm drawing from the city. I'm drawing from the gods way before I can give anything back to them. I mean, immediately just in that scenario with Priam or Priam, however you want to say it, <laughs> is that would he not be putting the love of his son above the love of the polis, above Troy, which is even worse because he happens to be king, right? He has a responsibility because part of this is like, you know, brother, ship him back, yep. send Paris back, send Helen back, give them a treasure and get out of here. And he can't do it. He can't let go of them. And now there's this haunting right. doom of Troy. So if we were to write this as, as a tragedy, the tragic flaw of Priam could be his love of his children. And the best tragic flaws are characteristics that are actually good when considered in isolation, but lead you to right. doom and destruction. He has a disproportionate good, right? C.S. Lewis in his great divorce has a character. It's just like this, right? She goes to hell because she loves her son more than she loves God. And when she comes up and visits heaven, which is a unique attribute of that book, right? When she comes up and visits heaven, she's literally in the presence of God, but all she can talk about is where is her boy, right? So it's, it's a good, I, I like what you've mentioned there because it's a good distinction of how evil works sometimes is that it's actually just a disproportionate good, mm -hmm. right? It's disordered according to how you should rank the goods uh, in your heart. And I think in a lot of ways, I think that's what Priam's done. Yeah. Uh, I want to bring up something about Agamemnon. I could do a defense of Agamemnon. Uh, have you ever been in management? Have you ever had? <laughs> you... I do manage a few things. Yeah. Yes. So maybe not defend him, but, you know, understand the difficulties of <sighs> getting a whole bunch of people unified in one action. Uh, I don't think he does it particularly well, but my brief forays in management made me think a little bit differently about Agamemnon. Nevertheless, he's greedy. So line uh, 340, he adds something. You were talking about repetitions. Menelaus agrees, let's just have the fight and whoever wins, even though it's an imposition on him because he had her and lost her. And so all he gets back is he gets back to square. He doesn't get anything else. But he's okay with that. Agamemnon says, and they pay us reparations fair and fitting, a price to inspire generations still to come. 
But if Priam and Priam's sons refuse to pay, refuse me, Agamemnon, with Paris beaten down, then I myself will fight it out for the ransom. I'll battle here to the end of our long war. He's added something that wasn't part of the deal. So if Menelaus wins, he gets Helen and all her treasures, but also a lot more treasures. Is he trying to screw up the deal? Or give himself an excuse to continue the fight? Is it just that he's Agamemnon, the greediest man alive, as Achilles calls him? Is this part of his character flaw that he just, well, let's let's get more money out of this? Or is it more calculated? Maybe maybe we do win, but they don't pay us, then we can still fight. Right. Well, also too, I think there's there's an aspect here of like why are they here? And Helen, in a certain ways, is just simply a pretense, right? So you have the oath, you have Helen. I seriously doubt everyone is here out of just the love of uh, marriage. And we really got to protect the marriage of Menelaus and Helen. Mm -hmm. But rather, right, there is this looming um, uh, allurement of, no, we get to sack Troy. Yeah. Right? I think even, right? And, and we saw Nestor last book, I think, talking to the men about, no, look, you get to come in and like, look, you'll get all these treasures and you get all the faithful Trojan wives. And, you know, at some point they've been laboring here for 10 years. I don't think the average Achaean is very concerned about Helen. And I don't think they would satisfy them if Helen went back, right? So I, I think that Agamemnon is probably a realist here about what would actually end this war. And they've got to empty the coffers and pay this out if this is going to work. I still don't think that aligns well, though, with the prophecies that have been given him that Troy will fall, that he'll walk the broad streets of Troy, etc. So it's hard to see exactly well, how he thinks Well, if he's counting on the prophecy, out. then he puts the extra conditions in to make it an impossible deal. You know, even if mm -hmm. they give reparations. Well, no, that's not enough. You can always, he doesn't give a dollar amount or whatever their currency was. Right. So this is, so one way to read this is that he's, this is doomed to fail. Yeah. The Achaeans know that this is doomed to fail on the front end, even before we have, um, Aphrodite come in. And this kind of talks about the things that we've already mentioned on 410. Menelaus actually reaches out to Zeus, right? Calls to him. And this is where you see guest friendship animating his prayer to Zeus, who's the patron. So even among the men to come, a man may shrink from wounding the host who showers him with kindness. Mm -hmm. So Zeus needs to have Menelaus win. So all of Greece can understand that a guest should not insult uh, his host, right? So you see that guest friendship animating this. I also think another thing to take away here is Aphrodite snatching Paris away. So Paris, you know, loses the duel. He's basically going to die. Aphrodite comes in and swoops him away and takes him to, and then Homer uses all these words that are hilarious, right? To his like be soft bedroom full of scent, right? Just like the most uh, non-military hard, like this is that juxtaposition you gave earlier, right? So Hector is the hard ax and like he's going to lead the warfare. And then Paris is like, look, I have other gifts. I'm pretty, right? Well, the pretty boy gets picked up and taken to his pretty bedroom, right? Where his mm -hmm. uh, supposed wife uh, is waiting for him. But one thing I'd point out here as we talk about precursors. So right now you mentioned that uh, one of the things I'm reading is, or I just finished reading was the Oresteia, which is a classical, uh, like 400s, I think mid 400s play about the, about Agamemnon. And um, because right now with Homer, you know, we're several hundred years prior. And one of the things that we need to realize is that um, a lot of things that in Homer become kind of stereotypes that then the classical Greeks use as they tell their plays. And particularly in the tragic scene, 
a lot of these characters in the Iliad, including the gods, that seem to be so imploded, like they can only very much focus on themselves, really lend well as stereotypes uh, and kind of these molds to later classical Greek tragic characters, right, who become obsessed on like one point. And even as you're watching them in the play, spiral down. I kind of think of also like Shakespeare's Hamlet, right? Even as you're like, brother, just walk away. Like, why do you care so much? They can't, right? It just eats at them. A lot of that starts here, these kind of literary tropes. And one of the things too, I think starts here is what the ancient Greeks, or I should say the classical Greeks, um, I guess they're not speaking Latin. What we know as Latin now is the uh, deus ex machina, right? The God Mm -hmm. of the machine. And what this means is, for those who don't know, because I know Dr. Shute does, is at the end of the play, right? So sometimes these tragedies, these Greek classical tragedies, you know, 400s, 300s, everything got so bent out of shape that at the end of the narrative, there can't be a resolution. So what ends up happening is, is some god has to come down and just fix things, right? There just has to be a fix. Well, it's called God of the Machine, right? Deus Ex Machina, because they would lower the guy down, right? Who's playing the god role. And so he gets lowered down. So it's the God of the Machine. The Machine God comes down and fixes something. It's hard not to see a precursor of that in Aphrodite just coming in and swooping Paris away. Right, so Paris is definitely going to get his comeuppance. He's going to die in this thing under Menelaus, which I think mm-hmm. is profoundly just. And Deus Ex Machina, here comes the god, just swoops him away and puts him back where, you know, his skill set is best used. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's comic. He's being dragged by his helmet to the Achaean lines. Paris is. You can imagine him kicking up in the dust, and uh, it's almost comic violent. It's violent. It's very violent. He's going to get killed, but it's kind of funny violence. Right, Three Stooges violence. Uh, And then she... Well, there's an ineptitude there, right? That's what makes it funny. It's just there's an ineptitude Mm -hmm. that just like to be dragged out like this. This is not going to be a noble death. You're going to die a terrible death here in front of everybody to the man that you wronged. Yeah. um, But the god coming in, the goddess coming in and messing everything up, there's a bit somewhere in here where the the Trojans and Achaeans are, uh, they put a curse on whoever breaks the peace. Correct. Yeah, that's line 376 or so. Father Zeus, ruling over us, pardon me, ruling over us all from Ida, God of greatness, glory. Whoever brought this war on both our countries, let him rot and sink to the house of death, but let our packs of friendship hold fast. Um, and there's something else somewhere where whoever breaks the peace. Well, who breaks the peace? Yeah. Yeah, it's down at, it's 350. Yeah, because that was both sides. What you read is both sides calling that out for whoever got us wrapped up in this war. May they go down sure. and rot in the house of death, right? Which again is an insight into where the armies are on this, right? But down at 355 is the curse on who breaks mm-hmm. the pact. Uh, whichever contenders trample on this treaty first, spill their brains on the ground as this wine spills. There's their children's too. Yeah. Their enemies rape their wives. Now it's um somewhat explicit curse. Yeah, uh, very clear. Well, Psalm one thirty seven. <laughs> uh, by the waters of Babylon. Read all the way to the end of that one, in a literal translation. Um, for a good curse. The it's the gods that break it. So I'm reading this again today and thinking, uh, you know, the gods are the ones that won't let them have peace. If it's it's a 
when you finish the whole thing and can read Knox's introduction, he was a Korean War veteran. And he talks about this sense that the, the war just has its own power and it just goes on without, you know, you would all just sit down and quit fighting. You have more in common with that guy across the trench than you do with the people making the war happen. Uh, we could all be friends. And something, somehow the war takes on a life of its own or, or the God comes in and makes it happen. Or uh, there's, well, when you read the next book, you'll figure out who breaks the the treaty. You know, who, who busts it open. Right. How can you read this and still admire and love the gods? You might fear them and worship them because they are strong. But they're just putting these people through a meat grinder for for what motive? So that the will of Zeus can be accomplished. Yes, I think to point out, like this is the end of book three, which is 24 books in this overall. This could have been the end of the war. Mm -hmm. If the gods just would have allowed this to play out. Now, granted, you've got what Menelaus, or excuse me, what Agamemnon's doing, but Agamemnon, I think, is highly couched only in the prophecies and what the gods have told him. So they're kind of animating whatever he's doing uh, as well. So yeah, the end of book three, like this could have been the end. Uh, the gods come down and mess with it, if you will. Aphrodite swoops Paris mm -hmm. off and then we can Hector and Achilles go off and, and have buddy adventures throughout the Mediterranean. Yeah, it could have been fun. Yeah. So there is a, um, so the, the story, the narrative then follows Paris. It follows him back to his room. And this gets into a lot of things that, that we spoke of earlier. Like, what is Helen's culpability as we play through this? Because this was another thing that surprised me the first time I read it, is then Helen doesn't even like Paris. Like, who, who and Troy likes each other, right? So, like, Helen doesn't like Paris. In fact, very clearly, that 500. So, home from the wars, again, just funny. Like, Homer's just funny, right? Like, she just sees Paris dropped off. She knows the war is going on outside. She's like, oh, you're home from the war. Oh, would to God you died there brought down by that great soldier, my husband, long ago. This is not exactly a warm relationship. So again, as we kind of track with first-time readers, it's, okay, literally what's happening? Okay, well, we see these antagonisms. There's antagonisms between Paris and Helen. There's antagonisms between a lot of the parties in Troy. And then I think once we see literally what's going on, then one of the perennial questions that kick in is, well, wait, what is their agency? What is their free will? Because not only does Aphrodite come in and sweep Paris away, but as we mentioned, then she basically forces by power, as you mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. The gods and they have the power, forces Helen into a relationship with Paris. Yeah, I'm thinking it's like a, the two people that fight all the time. Well, why don't you leave him? Well, because I love him. You know, what the love is, is it means mostly the physical, you know, so you have it's one of the the grave difficulties with uh doing things out of order in marriage is that you start the physical before you actually start the marriage then the physical takes on a life of its own and it's um it can make you make bad decisions <laughs> uh is that her fault I, the way it's in here it i th i think i it's like I said before, she's being manipulated, but she knows she's being manipulated, but she does not have the strength. Let's say she, what could she do other than, how could she refuse Aphrodite? It would require right. her to die. 
you know, what else could she do if the goddess is against her? What's, what's the exact threat? I just may toss you over or hate you as I adore you now. This is line 482 with a vengeance. I might make you the butt of hard withering hate from both sides at once Trojans and Achaeans, and then your fate can tread you down to dust. So if you don't want to do what I say, you can die. And probably die terribly, right? Because what she's actually arguing there, because Helen has a great line. Well, why don't you go to himself? Mm -hmm. Why don't you go to him, right? You're the goddess of love. And what she's actually threatening there is a terrible death. Because it's like, by the way, I will make both sides hate you because you caused all this, which there's an irony because Aphrodite caused all this to a certain mm -hmm. degree. But I'll make both sides hate you and then you get thrown in the middle. I mean, which would be a, probably a terrible death knowing how the Greeks functioned. So then she's basically forced now into this relationship with Paris, who, again, comically, literally just lost a duel in front of the entire army, both armies, actually, right? In front of his brother, who clearly doesn't believe of him, and Paris doesn't miss a beat. He's like, oh, yeah, Helen, come to my bed. I think he's like, a Let's sociopath. make love. Like he doesn't, he doesn't miss a beat. He's not like, man, I, he's not even in shock of the fact that God just like picked him up and put him in here. He's just like, oh yeah, I'm back in my bed. You know what we should do? We should have sex. <laughs> like he doesn't miss a beat. Like he's just, but again, he's playing out his skill set. He's playing out his gifts of the God. Hector can try and go die and save Troy and be heroic. Paris just has a different skill set okay, from the question. gods. Would it have been better or worse for him to die in the octagon, in the duel? for Paris. I mean, my gut reaction is it would have been better. I mean, to have at least somewhat of a, a glorious death in battle. Yeah. I mean, it's going to end up being very glorious, but at least dying in battle. Yeah, so that, that gives a, uh, an understanding of, of the value. So if you're going to say it would be better for him to die, that means that you have some sort of worth after you die, connected perhaps to your reputation, to your honors, well, what if you think all that stuff is make-believe, which maybe Paris does? You know, then why should I fight for... There's a great line from uh, the Russian philosopher Soloviev, Vladimir Soloviev. Uh, he doesn't actually agree with it, but he says, look, if there's no afterlife, why would I want to live a moderate life? Why would I want to follow the golden mean in virtues? You end up dead mm -hmm. anyway. Well, let me, okay, so let me, let me push into this a little bit. So, and some of this is, is more downstream in Plato, but I think we see it very clearly in Homer that these men, yes, I, I agree with you. I think there's a critique here of like, hey, wait, can we make sure that we watch like, what's the actual impetus of our ethics? And we say, oh, you should do this. You should do that. Well, if you don't believe in an afterlife, or your afterlife is somewhat terrible, you're down in, in Hades and it doesn't seem to be that great, what's the point? Well, I do think that in the Homeric period, we still see, uh, and Achilles is the example of this, right? What matters to them? Well, they can seek a certain type of immortality. They can seek the immortality of glory, of honor, of the fact that your your spirited part of your soul, which soul is probably a thick word for the Homeric sense, but um, the spirited part of you, right? This thumos craves glory. And it craves it in a way that has a certain fecundity, that you gain glory, you do something honorable, and you seek, it, it produces an immortality. And you see this, I mean, here we are, how many thousands of years later, and we're reading about these guys, right? They did things that, you know, merited this. Um, 
Paris, though, he's not, he does not seem to be an analog for the spirited mm-hmm. in the same way that, that Achilles is, right? Achilles is very much like the really over the top analog for the spirited part of the soul, right? Or that, that spirited part that seeks glory, right? He rages and these kind of things that you mentioned uh, earlier on and giving him a, a slight defense. Paris, though, isn't motivated by that. He's motivated more by the appetitive part of the soul, the pleasure, mm-hmm. right? And in this, and to be quite frank, if you're motivated by pleasure, that's, that's your motivation. And the goddess of love literally just handed you the most beautiful woman on the planet. What, why go fight and die? Like your, your immortality, right? Your um, satiation of your soul and what you actually find your fulfillment and rest in is Helen. Right. If there's no hierarchy of values, then you can't criticize Paris. Or, well, you could, but you'd be but you, wrong to. But do you think there's a hierarchy of values for, well, for one, Homer, and two, for um, the Achaeans and the Trojans? Because it very much seems like, like, so I would give a quick defense here. What Homer's values are is a little bit more complicated. But Hector very clearly, I think, critiques Paris on these grounds. Mm-hmm. Right, that you you lack the spiritedness because there's nothing actually that precludes, and we're going to see this later in the text. There's nothing that actually precludes someone who is great in the spirited that can seek the glory through military combat and doing glorious things from also having an ordered appetitive of seeking pleasure. I think there's a I think Homer the teacher is going to show us something with Hector and his family. Right, hmm. Achilles doesn't really have this. We'll see later that Achilles actually makes an explicit choice on this. But Paris seems to seek pleasure to the uh, exclusion of the glory that he should be able to attain in battle. And that's where I think he, he fails, right? And that's where I think Hector critiques him, is that he's put pleasure above that glory. And it seems like that that yeah. is a fault of values so, in the Homeric era. Note that Paris gets criticized by, by everybody, but by the Trojans, by his brother. <laughs> by his wife, uh, Achilles does not. So if you want evidence that there's some sort of hierarchy of values in Homer, at least that the heroes believe, Achilles decides, for for the sake of, of my honor, I'm not going to fight. In fact, uh, well, I'm just going to stay until you beg me. They don't go and yell at him. They don't call him worthless mm. like they do to Paris. So his overweening seeking of his own honor, and there's whole reasons why he does that, but that's not seen as an affront to them. That's understandable. If they could do it, they would do it too. Paris, though, that guy, <laughs> uh, he's not living according to our code. Uh, although perhaps he's living according to a more modern code, you know, we, we've gotten rid of these barbaric bronze age, uh, notions of honor and glory. So, uh, you know, why not, uh, chase the merely physical? Yeah. I mean, how many, yeah. If you look at the modern era, right. Does modern man more reflect Achilles or Paris, right? Do we seek, do we seek our immortality or fulfillment of our soul? through glory and honor and doing great things, the spirited things, uh, that thumatic things, if you will, or do we seek uh, pleasure? And not just seek pleasure, we seek pleasure at um, the expense of doing things 
that we should be doing. And actually, maybe not even that. It's not that he should be doing something. He also caused this whole problem. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that really to notice is that his inability to bridle his satiation and pleasure has caused not only personal problems, but societal problems. Assuming that we can say he's culpable yeah, which for is, it. Let's set aside. Well, it's why I called him a sociopath. I don't think he, as he's presented, <laughs> he doesn't care about anybody but himself. Uh, although he's willing to shift, you know, uh, he, he can say it's all my fault, but then he doesn't do anything to address that. You know, Hector yells at him. Yes, you're right. You're right. It's all my fault. Nevertheless, <laughs> these are gifts of the God. Uh, but do you find when you, uh, I like your comparisons of Achilles and Paris, but when you look at them in this way, that both seem to be okay letting their countrymen die for the thing that they want. So Paris, right, mm -hmm. unbelievably has immediately shifted. And he's like, yeah, I should just sit here in bed and make love to my, I guess my wife, whatever you want to call Helen. While there's a war raging outside, literally why my countrymen, including my brother, are fighting outside to defend our city. He's perfectly okay sitting there. You called that sociopathic. That's yeah. fine. But is there not an analog there to Achilles, who's then going to go sit by his... Might be, you know, tense. And might yet, be. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know that I can answer this without spoiling the book for your readers. Uh, well, right now we're just we're, we're exploring with inside of book three right. these parallels that we've been given. Because I think for me, a lot of people are uncomfortable with the fact that I understand Achilles saying, listen, I'm just not going to do it. But the way he phrased this prayer and how it works is, is that you're all going to get slaughtered mm -hmm. all the way back to your ship. So there's a lot of his own countrymen that are going to die as right. part of this process. So, is that not analogous to So Paris? what I said is that, that his actions are not foreign to the warrior, to the, to the heroic code in the ways that Paris are. So nobody, even after everything that's going to happen, nobody yells at Achilles. However, well, maybe, dear listener, you should pay attention to Achilles and see whether his whether everything works out. And this is where maybe Homer is saying something to you that's not in the text. He's showing you things. There is nobody more heroic than Achilles. My my definition of a hero, hero is somebody descended from the gods who cares profoundly about his own honor. Uh and is capable mm -hmm. of the great deeds that would get it. So not everybody's a hero. Not everybody can be a hero. Uh, well, nobody's more heroic than Achilles. He gets, I try not to spoil, uh, he dares great things and he's capable of all of them. Well, how does it work out for him? No, that's good. I think it, I, no, that's a huge thing. We need to watch and see how his decision plays out for him. And he's going to make a couple other decisions and we've got to see what the fruit are. Can I, I don't disagree with your theory, but I want to push back on it and see what you mm -hmm. say. Which is, so you said several times that um, the Achaeans aren't yelling at Achilles. Right? That, so if there's a parallel between Achilles and Paris, one of the things to note is that Paris is the subject of all of this ridicule, but Achilles is not yeah. to a certain degree. However, can that not just be predicated on the fact that the Achaeans need Achilles, whereas in the Trojans don't need Paris? So they can go and critique Paris and tell him he's an idiot and that he should just go throw himself off the walls and die. Because they don't need him. He causes more problems than he actually solves. However, Achilles, they don't need him to go, you know, drive himself on into the sea and kill himself because they actually really need him for the war. 
So is this not a rhetorical problem that they have, that they actually just, the way they speak to them isn't necessarily predicated upon an approval as much yeah. as it is who they actually I need I suppose I would defend my view. I could see what you're saying, uh, and I, I wouldn't really strongly oppose it. But um, big Ajax, I'm, I've got to go into the future just a little bit. Okay. <laughs> so when you go to book nine and Ajax is got the chance to really say something cutting, he doesn't. You know, and you figure if anyone would do it, it'd be him, because uh, he's straightforward and and. But he doesn't. So. Yeah, I, but I could see what you're saying. It, it might, but. Because the one person in the whole book I can think of, um, even though I do think Ajax's comments later are are somewhat strong, but I can't call, recall them with memory. But the one person I know who does actually just call out Achilles as just basically being a baby weeping by his tent is oddly not someone who needs him at all. It's Poseidon. Poseidon will actually critique Achilles as this basically worthless person off weeping by mm -hmm. his tents. And I think that's interesting because there's a god who just doesn't doesn't actually need him at all and finds him to be, you know, obviously subpar to the divinity overall. Yeah. Uh gosh, poor Achilles. Uh <laughs> That's your takeaway from that is that we have, we should have empathy well, for Achilles. I, I have Deacon Harrison. I have empathy for all of them. Uh, that, that, you know, I, that's why that Victor Hugo line hits me so hard. You know, you read these things, uh, they're all human and it's all the same subject. It's me, right? Cause I'm a human as well. And, uh, I mean, <sighs> Achilles backstory, who he is, why he is half human. You know, this is, uh, he's kind of in an impossible situation. Um, he is a tragic. He is a tragic character. I think the more it plays out, I I do agree. But I think he is. And I think that's one thing that's hard about making these comparisons is that, again, the problem that comes in is the fatalism. How much do these guys actually have control over their own agency and actions and things that are actually even put on them even before birth by the mm -hmm. gods? And how much are they they playing it yeah. out? So sometimes you have to kind of set well, that aside to make some of these parallels. And you have to think again. This is. Uh, well, you're getting into the tragedies, which are going to talk a bit about, you know, people coming home. I mean, you have Agamemnon coming home and trying to get back into his life, and well, it doesn't go very well. Uh, I have, I am fortunate never to have been in combat, but I know some people who have, and you know, they're all stuck in a war. All these characters are stuck in a war. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know. Book two, the the sequel, Iliad, the sequel, Odyssey, is a man trying to go home after all of this and finding that it's not as easy to just get on a boat and go home. And it and it's not just the physical journey that he's got to make, but uh, how do you go back and be the peaceful king of Ithaca when you've been the man of twists and turns? It, they're all being marked by this experience in in uh it's rough on all of them is what i'm gonna say you know uh who you know who gets a happy ending I, well i won't tell you that because a couple of them do get a happy ending but <laughs> we're, we're just we're just, we're, the, we're scratching the surface we're at the beginning and trying to understand these characters and their motives so good anything else about uh book three anything any major themes or anything that you think we missed um, 
Uh, Paris, when he puts on his armor, it's his brother's armor. I think that's interesting. He doesn't have his own armor. He puts on Lycaon's armor. Uh, You probably want to... uh, Probably want to pay attention to when characters wear armor that is not their own. Um, What else? Oh, it's so good. Uh, it is Paris's armor that's described in detail. Menelaus's is not, but Menelaus's armor is the one that works. To me, that recalls the Achaeans marching on in silence and the Trojans being very, very showy. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, my theory that this is a true story has to do... I give you two facts, and then I suppose that would be enough. So, one, you already did in, in book two. There are two Ajaxes. If you were writing fiction, Deacon Harrison, would you write two characters with the same name so that you always have to say Big Ajax, Little Ajax? <laughs> right. So it makes sense that, in fact, there are two. It's like a, a parallel New Testament, James the Greater, James the Lesser. That's confusing. We're just going to have one James. You know, uh, or one, like Judas has the same name as uh, Jude. Right. So you have to say, not the betrayer. And and another fact is Odysseus's appearance being described in that kind of funny, odd way. You would not probably make your fictional god hero look weird. <laughs> Unless he actually looked right. weird. Like there's this bit, this is, there's right. this fragment from Pop- Popius, I think, about the uh, evangelist Mark. Then it says he had stubby fingers. It must be true. You would not record such a thing about an evangelist unless it were true. And what a wonderful thing for someone to write down for all of uh, posterity is they uh, know that you were a weird-looking fellow. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess we already got the ugliest guy uh, that comes to Troy, so you know that he at least has a, a minimum standard. It is interesting, though, again, the commentary on Odysseus's looks, because as far as I know, that really drifts out of the narrative. And then when you get to the Odyssey, I mean, he is very much, I mean, it, it sounds like a god. Is what he looks like. Well, right? in comparison with the Phaeacians, for sure, which is another case. I'd say the mm-hmm. Phaeacians are a bit like the Trojans, and this is a spoiler that they have the appearance of greatness, but they have their magic island. They never have to leave it. And so they they might not have any actual virtues. They just look really nice. No, I think that's I think that's fair. Well, Dr. Carl <laughs> Shute, we greatly appreciate you being yeah, on and helping us uh, through book three. Yeah, no, it's very uh, very, very good to have you. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, there's, I suppose there's three places. You could go to onlinegreatbooks.com and stay tuned and see what's coming there. I honestly don't know, uh, but I'm hopeful. Uh, and you can find me at barbell-logic.com if you want to get some coaching. On Instagram, it's shoot underscore strength, which is books and barbells, but mostly barbells there, sometimes books. Uh, and there's also carlshoot.com where there's some short form stuff that I write just to have a website and put some blogs up. Uh, and yeah, so that's where you can find oh, very it. Very good. Well, we, again, we appreciate it. And thank you for coming on. And then next week, we will be discussing book four of the Iliad in our year of Homer. So see you guys next week.